Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this lecture, you'll learn what Jesus and the book of Acts have to say about conversion. From Jesus, we will examine his parable of the sower with special focus on the good soil. That is, those who hear the message, understand it, accept it, hold it fast, and bear fruit. Next, we'll work through all of the conversions in the book of Acts to discover the four elements of conversion, belief, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit. Lastly, we'll dig deeper into each of those elements to understand them better. My goal here in this lecture is simply to convey to you what the Bible teaches on the subject of conversion. In other words, how do you become a Christian? And then next time we'll look at what it means to follow Jesus in the process of growing in your faith. Here now is Theology Part 19, Conversion. We're looking at soteriology, the doctrine of salvation here, and the best way to do that is to look at a number of incidents, which are mostly in the book of Acts, that talk about people's conversion. So we're going to focus there in just a minute, but first off, I want to look at the sower and the seed parable and see if we can't come to an understanding on that one. I don't have time to go through the parable step by step. I do that in an evangelism class I teach, but in this class, I just want to look at the soil, the good soil. And it says in Matthew 13, 23, well, before I say that, let me say this. I want to start with Jesus. I don't want to start with like what his followers did after his resurrection. I want to start with Jesus himself. And Jesus himself talks about conversion, the elements that go into becoming a follower of his. That's what, that's what I mean by conversion. And he does that in telling this parable, this story, this made-up story of the sower and the seed. So you have Matthew 13, 23. You have Mark 4, 20. You have Luke 8, 15. And between these three, we get a more comprehensive view of what Jesus says goes into conversion. All right, Matthew 13, 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil... This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So that's what it says in Matthew 13, 23, is that he needs, this is the, the, per, the, the good soil is the person who actually gets the message. So first off it says that they hear the word and understand it. So you hear, you understand, and then you bear fruit. Okay, you hear, understand, and bear fruit. In Mark, we pick up that A there. Mark 4.20 says, But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. Once again, same expression, hear the word. But in this case, it says, And accept it and bear fruit. So we'll write accept over here and bear fruit. And then in Luke 8.15, it says, 
As for those that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear, bear fruit. So according to Jesus, putting together Matthew, Mark, and Luke on what the, what the good soil is from the parable of the sower and the seed, the ideal outcome is that somebody would hear the word, understand it, accept it, hold it fast, and bear fruit. And then there are a variety of amounts of fruit that you would bear. So this is, this is what it takes to become a follower of Jesus or to become what he called the good soil. If you never hear the message, you don't even get started. But if you hear the message, but you don't understand it, it doesn't do any good. But even hearing the message and understanding it doesn't do you any good if you don't accept it, if you don't actually believe in the message. But if you believe in the message and then you just give up on your faith and you don't hold it fast, it's still useless. Just like soil that gets a seed and then grows up, but then the plant dies, which is the other categories. And then the ultimate goal is to bear fruit. So that's just a little bit on what Jesus teaches us about conversion and being the good soil. What we see in, throughout the book of Acts on this table I have before you is four elements of conversion. Belief, repentance, baptism, and spirit, receiving the spirit in particular. And what I want to do is go through all of these verses with you and see if you can't tell me what you see in each one of them. Okay, so the first one up is Acts 2.38. And it says there, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we see here? Does it mention anything about belief? It doesn't say belief. It says repent. So it has no belief, but it has repentance, right? It has baptism. Does it say anything about receiving the Spirit? Yes, it does, right? Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the, the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. What do we have here? That's it. That's it. It's the only one that's mentioned there in that conversion experience. And then in Acts 8.12, looking at the conversion of the people in Samaria, well, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then it says in verse 17, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So here we see what? Belief and? Spirit. Spirit and? Baptism. And baptism. Very good. Then look at verse 13. This is the incident with Simon, Simon Magus. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So what did we see with Simon? Belief and baptism. baptism. Very good. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? What do we have there? Just baptism. Nothing else is mentioned. Uh, then chapter 9, verse 17, we read, this is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. So, and Ananias departed and entered his house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight 
and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What do we see there? So we have spirit there, but Paul actually retells this story in another part of the book of Acts, in chapter 22, verse 16, and it says there, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. So what do we have there? Right, so in the conversion of Paul, if we compare together chapter 9 and chapter 22, we have both baptism and spirit. Now, does that mean that he didn't believe? Of course not. Of course he believed. Does that mean he didn't repent? Of course he repented. <laughs> but you don't mention it every single time is what we're seeing here. Look at chapter 11, verse 21. It says there, this is the um, people in Antioch, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So belief, right? I skipped one. Look at 1044. This is Cornelius. 1044, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Verse 47 says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So what do we have on this one? Receiving the Spirit and being baptized. Chapter 13 Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What do we have there? 13.48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Another belie another See, belief was kind of holding back for a minute there, but it's catching up now. Right? Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 15. It says, And after she was baptized and her household, this is Lydia, as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. What do you think for that one? Yeah, just baptism mentioned. Verse 31. This is Paul and Silas in prison to the Philippian jailer. They say, and they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you, and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So what do we have here for the Philippian jailer? Believe and baptize. Does that mean he didn't receive the Spirit? It doesn't, doesn't say he didn't receive the Spirit. Okay, it just doesn't mention it. Then you get down to chapter 17, verse 30, where it says, The times of ignorance, this is Paul in Athens, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So that, that's just repentance. See, repentance was falling behind. Now we've got some more repentance right there. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. So he calls them to repentance, and some of them believed. Chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So here we have belief and baptism. Two more. 19, verse 5 says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is talking about people in Ephesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So for that one, what do we have? Baptism and Spirit. Right, we have baptism and Spirit. 
And then chapter 28, verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. I guess that would be just belief then. If you're convinced, then that means you believe it, right? All right, so this is the sum total of what the book of Acts makes available to us as far as the four elements of conversion. We have belief, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Spirit. There's not one incident in all of the book of Acts, one conversion incident, that mentions all four at the same time. Isn't that interesting? But, you know, different ones are mentioned at different times. Now, I think repentance is a little lower because it's assumed that if you're baptized, it's a baptism of repentance. You know what I mean? So usually you wouldn't necessarily say both, although here they do say both. Okay? But those are the four elements of conversion, is that you would believe, repent of your sins, receive baptism, and then receive the gift of the Spirit. Let's take each of these one at a time. First up, belief. What are we believing? Anybody want to be courageous and answer that? Yeah. We're believing God, but what about God? Uh-huh. What else? Death, he says, and we're down the cross for our sins and we're raised back to life. Death and resurrection. Yeah. The, w- the way we would summarize all of this together is we would say gospel or gospel message. That's what we're called to believe in. And I say that on the basis of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. I think I shared this with you before, but it says in 2 Timothy 1.10, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. So, under belief, we see that belief is in the gospel itself. Now, the gospel is not referring to a kind of music. It's not referring to the life of Jesus, a biography about Jesus. It's not talking about good news in general. And it's not talking about just like the whole Bible. The gospel is narrowly focused on a specific message with three ingredients in it. The gospel message includes information about the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection. The gospel includes information about the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection. Now, a lot of times in the Bible, you see the word, word. (laughs) And some of us are used to calling the Bible, the word, or the word of have you ever met somebody that calls it that it's pretty common uh and i understand why people do that because hey these are god's words right but it's important to notice that especially when it comes to the new testament although in the old testament the story is a little bit different that the word word really means the gospel message all right and so i want to prove that to you by looking at matthew 13 19 it says in Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So when it says the word of the kingdom, we look down in verse 20, it says, 
And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who receives or who hears the word and immediately So in one case, we had the word of the kingdom right here. But in the other case, it just says the word. You're supposed to understand that the word in verse 20 is the same as the word of the kingdom in verse 19. Right? That makes sense. Verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, twice, verse 23. But each time, it just says the word. It doesn't say the word of the kingdom. Only the first time, it says the word of the kingdom. And then you're supposed to take that understanding forward. That's just good writing. You don't have to say all the words all the time. You use different words to say the same thing. So anyhow... What I'm saying is that when you compare Matthew 13, 19 to verse 20, 21, 22, 23, you see that the word word refers to the full definition, which is the word of the kingdom. And that's the message that Jesus preached. Jesus did not preach about his death and resurrection. Why? Because it hadn't happened yet. After it happened, now the apostles, when they're preaching, they're still preaching the kingdom that Jesus preached, but they also add on to it the fact that he died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead, proving him to be the Messiah. So the word word in the New Testament typically refers to the gospel message. Probably the best place to see this is Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we see a number of different words used interchangeably. And it's really helpful to figure out how how, how these words work. So, for example, first up, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Then in verse 5, it says, here's an equivalent phrase, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. We're supposed to assume that those are the same thing. The word and proclaiming Christ. Preaching the word and proclaiming Christ. Same thing. Look down at verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached, now here we get a really long one, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's like the longest way you could say that. Right? So what we're seeing here is that, and uh, that word good news is actually the word gospel. So the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ, that's verse 12. We saw right above it in verse 5. That was just shortened to Christ. Okay? In verse 4, it was called the Word. And then we get down to verse 14, and it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God. These are all synonymous phrases. The Word of God. And then we look down, last of all, at verse 25, which says, Now when they had testified and spoken of the Word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. What was that, 25? So that's the Word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem preaching the Gospel. So this is all under Acts 8. And what this tells us is that we, we can't assume that the word word refers to the Bible. I know that that's very common in Christian culture today, but it's not like Philip showed up to Samaria and he started reading, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. No. When Philip came to Samaria, he had a very specific message that he wanted to preach 
to the people in Samaria. It was the message of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he was there preaching. It gets shortened in different ways. That is the same thing as saying the word of God, the word of the Lord, the gospel, or just preaching Christ. Okay? So that is really helpful for understanding what's going on here when we see the word word throughout the Bible. That it, It's not referring to the Bible in general, but the gospel message itself. And if you want to learn more about that, take my evangelism class. All right. The next thing is to understand what are these three elements. The three elements that I mentioned to you before that are in the gospel itself, were what were they? Do you remember? Very good. Kingdom, cross, and resurrection. So when it comes to like over here, it said the gospel of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. Obviously, kingdom is one-to-one -one equivalent, but the name of Jesus Christ refers to both his cross and his resurrection. That makes sense. So the kingdom aspect of the gospel, we find throughout the gospels where Jesus is preaching, where he sends out his apostles to preach. And this is sadly an ingredient that is often left out of gospel presentations today. A lot of people don't even know about the kingdom. They think you're just going to go to heaven or something like that. And so they don't preach it. But what the kingdom doctrine is that God's dream for the world will one day happen and he will heal our world and he will make everything wrong with the world right. We looked at this, right? The animals will be right with each other. The people will be right with each other. Our bodies will be right. The blind will see. The lame will leap like the deer. There will be justice and peace. There will be equity. We will be in relationship with God and with each other. We will be in a good relationship with God and good relationship with each other. And death will be no more. Sickness will be no more. That's the kingdom good news. But there's also a flip side to the kingdom. The kingdom is like a rock. And if you're under the rock when it crashes to the earth, you're going to get crushed. In other words, the good side of the kingdom is all what I was just sharing about restoration, but there's also the judgment aspect of the kingdom. And that is that when Jesus returns, those who are not his followers are not going to like it because they want to stay in power. And, they, and there's going to be a serious judgment that occurs. And so if you, if you look at the kingdom only as all like the nice things that are going to happen and you, don't, and you skip out all like the day of the Lord stuff from the Old Testament when God pours out his wrath and he judges sinners, then you're not going to very easily move from belief to repentance, right? Because you're going to believe it and be like, oh, it sounds like Disney World. That's great. You're not going to change your life. You're going to be like, oh, the kingdom just sounds like a wonderful place to be. I, I can't wait till it gets here. Until you find out that the kingdom has two sides to it. It has restoration, but it also has judgment to the wicked. And by definition, that person is wicked if they haven't yet repented. So you better repent of your sins. And so that's how preaching the gospel leads right into repentance and baptism and receiving the Spirit. So that's the kingdom aspect. The cross... We've just spent an hour talking about the cross, right? And that is that Jesus, in the simplest way I can put it, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins so that your sins would be taken away. Now, in our day and time, so often in gospel tracts, this one element is singled out and emphasized 
and in our music as well, this one aspect is totally emphasized and usually they don't include anything about the kingdom or the resurrection. They just preach the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died, and they get rid of these other two elements. I'm here to tell you that that is not a balanced view of the gospel. A balanced view of the gospel is to have all three of these and not just emphasize one of them above the others, but to recognize that the kingdom is God's dream for the world. It's what he set the world up to be in the beginning when he made the earth to start with and that got messed up. But he has promised not only to Abraham and David, but through the prophets, through the Messianic Psalms, through Jesus, through the apostles, that one day he is going to fix this old world. And that's some seriously good news. But the problem with the world is people. And we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we need to repent because otherwise we're going to be judged when the kingdom arrives. Thank God for the cross, which makes a way for our sins to be covered so that we can be forgiven. But the cross would be absolutely meaningless without the resurrection. Do you know how many people were crucified in the first century? Just one, right? Jesus. Jesus is the only one that was ever crucified in the whole, the whole first century. The whole, thousands of people. I mean, I don't, I don't know myself, but I do know this, that there was one period around the year, uh, the late 60s, where the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem and people were escaping the city and the Roman soldiers would capture them and they would crucify hundreds of people every single day to intimidate the people in the city to give up and let them conquer it. Crucifixion was a totally normal part of the Roman domination of other nations. It was, it was meant to humiliate and to instill fear in people and to say, you mess with us, that's going to happen to you. Right? So crucifixion is not, it's not like Jesus is the only one that was crucified. What makes Jesus' crucifixion so significant and amazing? None of those other people got raised from the dead. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day tells us that the cross has meaning. It wasn't just Roman injustice and greed and power. It was God's love expressed through the cross. The resurrection is the only reason why the cross matters. Only if God raises Jesus from the dead does the cross turn, does it flip from a symbol of brutal rulership of Rome to God's supreme love and dealing with our sins so that we could be reconciled back to Him. So you really need all three parts of that gospel message. Obviously, you also need what Katie Best said, which is to believe that there is a God, and that He's a creator, right? I mean, that's kind of like backing it up a little bit, but yes, you do also need to believe in God. So there might be some other stuff you would have to add in depending on who you're talking to, right? But that's the, that's the gospel message. That's what you have to have belief in. And that belief, if it stays by itself, makes you no better than a demon. Because the, the demons believe and shudder. But they, this is what they don't do. They don't repent. And they certainly don't get baptized because that would just be weird. Um, so you have repentance and baptism and receiving the Spirit. Let's go through those one after another. When it comes to repentance, take a look at Mark 3.14. I want to show you how Jesus and his apostles preach this. 
Mark 3.14. So this is under repentance. And I just lump uh, repentance and baptism in together because repentance is, on the one hand, feeling sorry for what you've done. But on the other hand, it's also making a commitment, making a decision, I'm going to live differently. And that's what baptism symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes a new life. You go down in the water and it kills off the old life. You come up to walk in the newness of life, according to Romans chapter 6. So baptism, in fact, the earliest baptisms we have are the baptisms of John. And the way the Bible describes it is it calls it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it's hard to drive a wedge between these two. I mean, if you were getting baptized and you're not repenting, you're just taking a bath, right? Like, who cares? It's not really baptism anymore. Uh, so baptism and repentance, I'm kind of like dealing with together here. But Mark 3.15 says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. You got me? This is Jesus. He's in his ministry. He's got his 12. He's appointed them. What's he want them to do? To preach. To preach. He wants to send them out to preach. And we read in chapter 6, verse 12, how they summarize that message. It says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That's, it. That's what they went out and proclaimed. So, even from the beginning of Jesus gathering his 12 disciples to him and sending them out, he sent them out to preach. And in the preaching, they're calling people to repentance. Take a look at Luke 12 or Luke 24, 44. This is under repentance. This is what Jesus said kind of at the end of his ministry. So in the beginning of his ministry, he gathers the 12 and he sends them out to preach. And it says that they went out and preached that men should repent. And then at the end of his ministry, in Luke 24, 44, we read, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So the commission that Jesus gives his disciples before he leaves, like this is at the very end of his time with them, is that they would go and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now I know that today in our world repentance is very awkward. Because we want to just like tell people things that they want to hear and we want people to like us, right? Everybody wants people to like us, right? Well, I, we all have like that one friend that says they don't care if people like them, but they really do. Uh, <laughs> I, but that doesn't mean just because we have this desire for people to like us or that in our society today, it's like the cafeteria mindset where you're like, oh, I'll have a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of this over here, and we'll just put it all on my, on my tray and I'll have a great life. That is where we're at culturally. But the simple fact is that as the people of God in this generation, we are not allowed to change the message. We are messengers. Messenger doesn't change the message. 
A messenger delivers the message faithfully. And the message that God has given to us and to the world is a message about the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection that calls people to repentance, to genuine heart change, where they would actually change their lives, stop living for themselves, and start living for Christ. And look, if we don't include this in the message we preach or that we share with our friends, and we say, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, that's not all you have to do. That's the starting place of what you have to do is believe. But then you have to actually change. You have to repent. You have to turn away from sin and turn towards God. And the symbol of that is baptism. And then when you do that, God is able to reach down through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But before we get to that, I just want to show you a couple of other verses on this repentance. Just two more. Acts chapter 10 verse 38. This is a key verse on repentance. This is often left out. That's why I'm kind of emphasizing it right now, because this element of conversion is very often just like, all right, we're not going to talk about that. Let's just go to believe, baptize, receive the Spirit. Well, God does that, so we don't need to worry about that. Let's just focus on these other things. Let's not talk about repentance because that's difficult or somebody might get mad. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. This is Peter talking at Cornelius' house, and he talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Take a look at verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus appointed his apostles, his disciples, his followers to preach that he is appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. If you share the gospel, if you share your faith with somebody else, and you don't also include the fact that Jesus is ultimately a judge to whom everyone must answer, then we're not being faithful to this. We're not being faithful to the commissioning that he's given us. We can't just tell people the good stuff. We have to tell them also the warnings that, look, if you don't change your life, if you don't get on board with the gospel program here, it's not going to go well for you on the last day. And you say it with love in your heart. You don't say it like a jerk, obviously. Uh, you, don't, you don't be like, oh, it's, you're going to be toast in the fire. <laughs> right? I mean, obviously, we're not going to, well, I, maybe it's not obvious. Please don't do it like that, okay? Please don't say to people, uh, you are going to help burn the fire, and I uh, really appreciate that because I'm saved. So I'm going to be watching that fire, and I'll be like, oh, there's Tommy. <laughs> no, like... That is, not, that is not where we're coming from. Uh, we're, we call people to repentance, but we don't do it in a smug or judgmental kind of a way. I mean, t- take a look at Paul when he does this. Acts 17.30. The Apostle Paul straight out tells the people in Athens that God's fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world. He's not afraid to say it. And a lot of people didn't believe in him when he said that. A lot of people said to him, Resurrection. <laughs> please. And they didn't believe in him. 
But you know what? It says right at the end of that chapter of Acts 17 that there were some who believed. And those are the ones you're going for. Those are the ones we're interested in. That remnant, those few, those people that say, you know what? I think, I think you're right. I think God does want me to be with Him forever. I think God does want me to live for Him rather than myself. And there's a list here in verse 34. It says, But some men joined Him and believed, among them, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, you know, you can't be stressed out about the um, results. you got to focus on, first of all, being faithful to the message that God has given us. And then second of all, on how to say that to somebody so it makes sense. You don't want to talk in a way that's just like, doesn't make any sense because you're speaking Christianese and they're like, I don't know, a Muslim or something. You have to like translate to that person's thought world, obviously. All right. The last element here is receiving the gift of the Spirit. People often ignore this gospel element, but the scriptures include it frequently. You see exactly how many times the scriptures include this conversion element in the uh, book of Acts. T let's take a look at chapter 8. This is really probably the best place to look and see how they work through this whole business with the Spirit. Acts chapter 8, we've already looked at several times in this lecture, is when Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches to Samaria. Now, it's interesting I don't know if you know anything about Samaritans. It turns out Jews hated Samaritans. They thought they were the scum of the earth. And Samaritans hated Jews. They thought they were the scum of the earth. Okay? And that's because there, were, there, there had been centuries of animosity and antagonism between these two groups of people. And the Samaritans, at one point the Samaritans were so hateful and spiteful of the Jews that they went to their temple and they threw dead bodies around right before Passover. Like their own deceased people. Like they just took these dead bodies and threw them all around the temple so that the temple would be defiled and it would need to be cleansed and they couldn't celebrate Passover. I mean, talk about a vengeful thing to do. Like there's Aunt, Aunt Chloe over there and she's like, let's dig her up and throw her down in the temple. I mean, come on. It's just so bizarre. And the Jews had been very evil to the Samaritans more than a century before Christ. About, um, I think it was around 150 years before Christ. There was a, a great king named John Hyrcanus, a great Jewish king. And he destroyed the temple of the Samaritans, which was on Mount Gerizim, and forced all of them to convert to Judaism. So the Samaritans had a lot of bad blood against the Jews. The Jews had a lot of bad blood against the Samaritans. In fact, when Jesus met that woman at the well in Samaria, she was shocked that he would even talk to her. It's like, why, she, why are you talking to me? And then it says in parentheses there, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's another time that Jesus is on his way to a festival, and this is so funny. Uh, he's on his way down to a festival, and he decides to cut through Samaria. And it says, when the days drew near, this is Luke 9:51, for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's like, I'm going to stop in Samaria on the way. Can you, can you find a place for me to spend the night? me and my disciples. So the disciples go ahead and the Samaritans are like, oh, you're going to Jerusalem to that defiled temple? Ain't no way you're staying in this town. 
They reject him. Jesus' disciples, they respond by saying, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Jesus' disciples are so infuriated. They're like, they want to use God's power through Jesus to literally incinerate these filthy Samaritans. Can you imagine asking Jesus the question like, hey, um, should we call fire down and just like consume these guys? Does that seem like a normal question? So there's a lot of animosity between, and, and, some, and that's why when Jesus told the Good Samaritan parable, he put a Samaritan in it for shock value. It's so shocking that a Samaritan would actually be friendly to the wounded Israelite. All right, back to Acts chapter 8. Got excited there. Acts 8, 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So here's what happens. Philip decides, all right, Christianity has gotten started. We need to move this word. Let's take it other places. We're suffering persecution back in Jerusalem. I know. I'll go to Samaria. So Philip going to Samaria, bringing the gospel with him, was an incredibly radical, um, I don't know what you call it, inclusive maneuver. I mean, sometimes people associate racism with Christianity. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, Christians are racist or whatever. But the simple fact of the matter is that first-generation Christianity reached to Africa through the Ethiopian treasurer, right? And he went down and he preached to them. Christianity reaches all the way out towards India right from the beginning, and it reaches all the way towards um, Europe as well. And it's, I don't know, I think it's one of the, the factors that we should be proud of as Christians. So anyhow, Philip preaches in Samaria. It says that when they believed Philip, verse 12, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not fallen yet on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, the normal pattern for conversion, if you look through all these different instances that talk about the Spirit, is that when somebody believes and repents and is baptized, then they receive the Spirit. That's the normal pattern we see if you look at these references here. The exceptions come in with these two right here. The time in Samaria and then the time at Cornelius' house. And they're opposites. The time in Samaria, the people did not receive the Spirit until the apostles came and the apostles laid hands on them to receive the Spirit and then it happened, okay? Now, with the case of Cornelius' house, it was just the opposite. Peter is there preaching. In the middle of his sermon, the Spirit falls upon them and they start interrupting what he's saying by speaking in tongues. And then as soon as Peter sees that, they're, they, that God has accepted them, he says, well, we should baptize these guys. We need to accept them into the church. 
So the normal pattern like that we see throughout Scripture is that God kind of you know, sends down, well, actually it's Jesus that sends down the Spirit on people. And, the, and we know the Spirit, right? The Spirit is what helps us to live for God. It's an empowerment. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You also have the gifts of the Spirit, right? This is something that is, is part of normal Christian living today, right? But in the case of chapter 8, it did not come right away they had to lay their hands on it. And so some people, they ask the question, you might be asking the question, well, why not? Why didn't the Spirit, why didn't God just like send the Spirit like He normally does or, or Christ send the Spirit like He normally does? The Bible doesn't tell us why. If I'm going to guess, I'm going to say something like, well, maybe He wanted the apostles to be involved because of all this racism between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other so much. Maybe that's why. I don't, I don't, it doesn't tell me why. It just tells me that they believed, they were baptized, and then when they found out in Jerusalem, Peter and John came as the leaders of the church, and they laid their hands on them, and that God backed them up by sending the Spirit to these people. Now, um, as I said to you before, I don't think we need to make this a standard. You have to be careful with the book of Acts. You don't want to make everything they did in the book of Acts, the standard for what we have to do today. But also, you don't want to discount the book of Acts and be like, oh, well, that was all just back then and this is today. I think what you want to do is get the overall scope of the book of Acts and realize that these are the various elements of conversion. And if you're missing one of these, then you want to be able to, to have the, the, full, the full experience, right? The full conversion. So, the other, the other quick incident is in Acts chapter 19, just to close out here, Acts 19, verse 1. And this is when Paul is in Ephesus, and he encounters a group of Christians. Actually, he doesn't even call them Christians. He says, there he found some disciples. So, Paul meets these disciples in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, and he says, his first question to them is, did you receive this, the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, What's that? Well, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Once again, I'm not saying this would be the standard that we would see with every single instance, but this does tell you something, right? This does tell you that just believing in John's baptism wasn't enough. They also needed to believe in Jesus. So he preached to them about Jesus. They had already repented of their sins, so they kind of skipped over that one. He baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, then he laid hands on them and prayed for them to receive the Spirit. And so that's how it works throughout the book of Acts. The indwelling of the Spirit means, theologically, there's a lot of understanding that comes with this, which you can read about in Ephesians and Romans. But let's put it this way. The indwelling of the Spirit, more than anything else, means that we belong to God. And we see that in, uh, let me just give you this last verse under the Spirit category. Romans 8, 8 through 11. 
under the spirit category. Romans 8, 8 through 11 tells us that you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit, okay, Here, here's my point. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, which dwells in you. So the spirit indwelling in you means that we belong to God and that he will resurrect us. Did you see that? If the Spirit is in you, then He will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. Well, that's it for this one. Thanks for tuning in and listening in. I, I did want to share with you just where I'm at right now. I, I recorded this episode a week ago, but right now I am in Kenya, in, in Africa, visiting Maurice Chihilu and a number of believers there, and I, I hope to share more about the work that's going on here in Kenya, but these are people that I've been in contact with with for maybe, uh, maybe 10 years on email, and uh, Joe and Rebecca Martin have worked with them extensively, especially over the last five years, and uh, really developed an exciting spread of the kingdom gospel and the creed of Jesus in this country of Kenya. And uh, so, so I'm here right now in Kenya, and I am uh, visiting the churches and checking out the new headquarters building that is still under construction here. It's a it's a building that we are hoping will be able to serve as a Bible college to train up pastors and send them out. So please if you um, if you're listening to this in in real time on Thursday or Friday or Saturday or Sunday, please uh, do me a favor and pray for me, pray for the team that I'm a part of in Kenya. And uh, for the work here, uh, that our, our, the rest of our week would go well, and that uh, God's good news would radiate forth from this message and spread throughout this entire region of Africa. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.